0: The key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing
1: my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right
0: at home.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
3: Hello, and welcome to Bat Chat. If you think of the Nature Podcast as an evidence based policy decision, then Bat Chat is a referendum. This month's schedule reads a bit like a travel itinerary. The Juno spacecraft has arrived at Jupiter, rhinos are catching intercontinental flights and Britain is planning its departure from the EU. I'm Adam Levy and this month's backchatters are Lizzie Gibney.
4: Hello Adam, I am a physical sciences reporter here in London.
3: And Dan Cressy. Hello
1: Adam, I'm one of the senior reporters here.
3: And Celeste Beaver.
2: Hi Adam, I'm the news editor.
3: Coming up, the UK has voted 52% to 48% to leave the European Union. Whereas last back chat we could only speculate on what the fallout might be, we now have a month of upheaval to discuss. We'll also be talking about the Juno spacecraft's arrival at Jupiter and why tiny spacecraft always get huge attention from the press. Lastly, and most bizarrely, we'll be talking about plans to airlift rhinos from South Africa to Australia. What could possibly go wrong? First up, to Brexit. We spoke about Brexit in last month's show, which came out on Wednesday, June 22nd. On Friday morning, the news was out that the UK had indeed voted to leave. Now, first up, Celeste, what was the mood in Nature HQ?
2: Well, first thing I want to say is we actually had a Brexit plan, unlike a lot of uh, politicians. Um, So that kicked into action. And um, I was actually away that day as the news editor, which was kind of terrible timing. I'd just taken a flight to go on holiday in America. But um, that meant that when I got off the flight, it was 3 or 4am in the UK, which was just before they kind of called it for leave um, so I knew it was going to happen so I sent a miserable email to the chief magazine editor and our um, senior news editor here saying I'm pretty sure it's happened um, blah, uh, but get, get on with the Brexit plan that we made a couple of days ago so I was really 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 glad we had that Brexit plan.
1: And what was the Brexit plan? So Celeste's Brexit plan was to be on holiday obviously. <laughs> as was
2: my actually <laughs>
1: um, but I think like most or many publications we had prepared two stories one for either side of the vote and then we spent the morning after the vote drastically ringing around trying to get comments from people and making sure that the assumptions that we'd made and the comments we got in advance of the vote actually did apply um Like a lot of people who were looking at the polls and the betting markets beforehand, the result was something of a
3: surprise to us. Now, even though we've had the vote, we should say that no one actually knows when we will be leaving the European Union and quite a lot still hangs in the balance. So, so what do we know so far?
4: Well, we've had... So there's a new Prime Minister, Theresa May, and she has definitely reaffirmed that it is happening. There's there's no going back. Um, there's this thing called Article 50, which has to be triggered in some kind of scary ceremonial way before the formal negotiations happen between the UK and the EU. Um, there are so many things that need to be renegotiated, trade deals, and, you know, science is a little part of a much, much bigger scheme here. Um So I think that's the the issue really is because of that fact, because science is just so interconnecting with everything else. Um, The uncertainty that's there is just hanging over everything and is going to continue to hang for a very long time. So as journalists, we're in a kind of interesting position in that everyone expects people like us to go out there and find the answers to all these questions. But actually... At the moment, nobody seems to know the answers.
3: So what do we report on in in absence of those stories? Do we just report on the un- uncertainty?
1: We know that there are a huge amount of questions that scientists have and nature readers have about all sorts of things like whether they will still get their European funding, whether they European, uh, their EU colleagues can still come and work with them. Um, And the answer to nearly all of those questions at the moment is, we don't know. But there are individual anecdotes of specific problems that are being encountered, which we've been reporting on, and also looking further down the line at who is going to be providing answers to these questions. What are the systems that are being set up to come up with these answers?
2: Yeah, I mean, from a perspective of how scientists are reacting, I mean, this story provides a huge amount of mileage for us, but it's something that really affects our readers' lives. And at the same time, it's a grand political drama that's playing out all over the world. And we're even finding that it's not just Europeans that are interested in this. Outside that, Americans are fascinated by it because it's something that a lot of people didn't expect to happen. So from a coverage perspective there is a lot to say and a lot to write about and a lot to find out. And I mean, it's almost overwhelming.
3: I sometimes worry that this is something that we like to go on about a lot, but people in the rest of the world might be getting sick of. But have you found that readers in other countries are still very engaged?
2: Yeah, I mean, all the stories that we put up on Brexit get a lot of traffic and engagement. So people seem to really want to read about them and our US team stays on the line for all our Brexit meetings and asks lots of questions and you know the US um, news editor keeps telling me More, 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 we want more about Brexit. But uh, suddenly it's created all this interest in the EU and how it all works that people just didn't have before.
4: And I think that's something we can provide because a lot of the time in like UK science policy stories are very UK focused and expect everyone to know what's going on and been following it for years and years. Whereas we are very, very conscious we're writing for a big international audience. So I think that's exactly what we try and do is take all that knowledge that we have about how it all works at the internal and nitty gritty level, but then say, okay, so what does this mean? And, and, and give it kind of broader relevance.
1: And on a kind of anecdotal level, I have I've found that international scientists um, who I've been talking to about completely separate things have mentioned Brexit in a way that hasn't happened to me
3: previously with any UK political issue. So, so what do we know? You mentioned, I think, Dan, that there have been certain anecdotes coming out um, about people's negative experiences of Brexit. So, for example, The Guardian ran one story in which they spoke of UK scientists dropped from EU projects because of post-Brexit funding fears. Do we actually know that stories like this are true at this stage or is it just kind of a rumour, Mill?
1: Well, yeah, we've had um, other examples in Nature as well of specific, uh, some very specific projects where people have said that there have been problems as a result. The, the issue, though, is there is a lot more rumour here than there is concrete facts at the moment. And there's a lot of fears swirling around. And equally A lot of people wouldn't know if they'd been cut out of a particular collaboration. I mean, it's very hard to prove that someone who might have approached you to be a collaborator on a research grant chose not to because of Brexit. And at the moment, the UK is still part of the European Union. So as the government is very fond of telling us and the science minister has been saying repeatedly, like, it should be business as usual. But of course, it's not business as usual, because everyone expects the EU to leave. It's kind of like being in a relationship where you think your partner's about to dump you and trying to act as if it's not going to happen.
3: There has actually been a huge amount of political upheaval in the country so far that we've got a new cabinet, we've got a new prime minister. What's happening in the domain of science?
2: So there's been kind of a mixture of uh, some stability and some change. The universities and science minister, Joe Johnson, has stayed in place, um, which has offered some kind of welcome stability for scientists. Uh, On the other hand, the Department for Energy and Climate Change has been merged with the department called Biz for Business Innovation and Skills to create a whole new department. So that was a big change. And that's been put under someone who is a former science minister called Greg Clark, which some scientists welcome. On the other hand, there's some fear and worry about what it means that there is no longer a department called the Department for Energy and Climate Change. So again, Change some uncertainty about what it means, and a little bit of stability.
4: And that reminds me of just how much of a roller coaster this has been to cover, because the number of, of news items that would have been like a standalone story that might have happened by like ten in the morning or something. <laughs> like, yeah. like every day, there's something new, and each of these would have been, you know, would have been something that we'd have gone over, analyzed. You know, Greg Clark is is, is now the head of this department. Um, what does that mean? He used to be science minister, whereas now that's just one of, you know, maybe a hundred things that have been quite significant that have happened since the referendum. Um, and I guess that's it. We have to make sure that we cover them at some point in some way and not just let them escape and run away from us.
2: Yeah, it was a real news pile up between the middle of Thursday and middle of Friday. It just, you know... From the minute the new prime minister was in place, it just started to the news kind of was falling in every second. And we were in a situation where we wanted to post the story. And every time we were ready to post it, something else happened. So the story was out of date. So it was almost, you know, we were like fighting. We couldn't post the story because we couldn't keep up. I mean, it was crazy.
1: The government has reformed, as Celeste said, a lot of its departments. And no one even knows how to pronounce the new department. We used to be BIS, the uh, Department for Business, Innovation, and Skills. And now we are the Department for Business. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Energy. Business, Energy, in, Innovation. In,
4: no, oh. Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. Business, Energy, and Industrial so Strategy. is it Bayes? I, 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 I like f- bees. Bees. I like bees. Yeah. I mean, I do like bees as well. <laughs> yeah, the, no, nobody seems to know. So hopefully that's, you know, number one on the to-do list. When Although if we put
1: department stop. in front of it, we could call it Debbie's, which sounds quite good.
2: Yeah, sounds like a cafe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but not a very good cafe, like one of those ones in a lay-by on the M25. <laughs>
4: this makes me think as well as like, we we have given everybody in government a bit of leeway because nobody knows what's going on. We had something of a plan before this happened. And obviously, we've learned that people in charge didn't. But like there's this department that is now in charge of science that we're supposed to be writing about. We couldn't find who to talk to in terms of their press office. They didn't have a website. You know, they didn't have a Twitter handle for a while. Like, it's there's just been a bit of a vacuum and um, that's so unheard of. I've never really experienced that in my political reporting either.
3: Now, obviously we all have personal opinions about how Brexit affects us and our lives personally. And in fact, nature came out explicitly to oppose Brexit. But As reporters or editors, is a story like this a blessing? Is it a curse? Is it great to have all this new news coming in or is it exhausting having to come up with different angles on effectively the same story every day? We can probably answer that by talking
1: about the uh, the plan we made in advance of Brexit. Um, we said that if there was a remain vote, we would have a story immediately after, probably a story the week after that, and then maybe a story the week after that. Whereas if it was a leave vote, we were going to see how many people we could pull off just about everything else they were doing to totally focus on writing about this. I mean, this is Probably the biggest political event in my lifetime. Probably in most of the people who work at Nature's Lifetime, in UK terms at least. Uh, this is absolutely huge. So as a journalist, we're yeah, you're now at the center of this massive event and trying to make sense of it.
2: I mean, I think this is a huge story for us and really unique and almost unprecedented in the sense that, like Dan said, it's a huge political event, but it sometimes we struggle to find an angle on a political event. This is not like that. The angles are absolutely laid out for us. It it affects the lives of our community in a really, really direct way.
4: We've been having news meetings about this every day like after we have a, we have a news meeting every morning um, to discuss everything that's happened in science since yesterday um and after each one of those
2: we have a specific Brexit meeting so there is plenty to be filling our time we have a Brexit unit basically and everything that we're doing in news we now replicate for Brexit it's definitely i mean it is a challenge because we don't have any extra resources but i think we're trying to really see this as an opportunity for news, an opportunity for us to write things that people really care about.
1: I kind of think as a journalist, well, it, it is sometimes frustrating. I've personally had to park or pass on to other journalists a bunch of stories that I kind of wanted to write because they're not about Brexit. But equally, like this is the biggest story. If you're in the UK and you're a science journalist, Brexit is the biggest story. Do you want to write about the biggest story that's around or do you want to write about something else?
2: We've got the rest of our lives to write about black holes, Neanderthals, fairy animals. But This is the moment to write about Brexit.
1: That said, come back in six months and you might get a different answer.
2: I don't think the world can sustain this level of interest um, for the next 10 years. So I think it is going to be interesting and it's a bit of a challenge for us as well, I think, to make sure we capitalise on it, but also sort of anticipate when at some point the pace is going to slow down a bit.
3: And it might take 10 years before we do actually leave the European Union. (laughs) Well, while the UK continues to debate how and when it will actually leave the European Union, NASA have only gone and arrived at Jupiter. Lizzie... What is the little Juno spacecraft up to? What's what's it there to find out?
4: Well, it's going to probe Jupiter. So I think the last um, major mission that was there was Galileo, and that was back in 1995. So it's been a long time since we've been to Jupiter. Um, there's lots and lots of different things it's going to look into, uh, probing the planet's atmosphere, um, trying to figure out if there's a layer of hydrogen compressed into a liquid, um, looking for evidence of a core. So if there's this kind of dense nugget of heavy elements that uh, are... That, that that they think are there, but have never been observed, um, and then you know, studying it's got these amazing ammonia and hydrogen sulfide clouds. So um, Juno is on a on a great mission of exploration.
3: A lot of fuss was made that it took over five years to get there, almost two billion miles, and it was one second off schedule when it arrived. I have no way of judging. It <laughs> sounds impressive. Is that is that impressive?
4: I think it's pretty impressive because it means that all of their calculations uh, were very, very, very exact, and I think that's part of uh, what we enjoy about it. I I love the way that we send off these uh, spacecraft, and then everyone kind of forgets about it a little bit, and then suddenly it's arriving, and you know we'll have it on our news calendars. All right, you know, Gino gets to Jupiter um, in July 2016, and it's just a bit of a
2: like a forgotten gift. All that time when all we've been doing all that all these things, that little craft has just had one goal it's just been heading towards jupiter
3: a lot of important science stories often get limited coverage in mainstream press but but whenever there's a space mission it always seems to be a hit it's almost guaranteed that it'll get press coverage everywhere Why is that? What is it about space that just lights up people's imaginations?
4: I think I used the word exploration before, and that is very much what it is. And actually, we're doing that all the time in science. People are kind of pushing back on the the darkness and learning more about our universe. But never is it as explicit as when you are sending a little robot out into the depths of space and it's going somewhere that a human has never been and sending back information. So I think it kind of encapsulates what we are trying to do a lot of the time as researchers um, but in such a
2: a perfect and kind of palatable package I mean it's the definition of new I mean if something is going not even to a new place on our planet but to a new place in the universe that we've never had a window on before just who wouldn't be captivated by that and I also think it has a huge philosophical dimension that even if the particular mission is almost mundane, the subject matter is so unmundane and so grand. And, you know, all the things about us just being one tiny one of many planets in the universe, all these incredible questions just get pulled into any story about space
1: and it also comes prepackaged for news reporters by NASA. They're very savvy about when they host their press conferences, when they release their first images and all of these kind of things as someone who doesn't report on space, I mean, they are an incredibly slick PR operation compared to just about anything else you will encounter as a science journalist.
4: But also, I think it's because it's packageable in that format. Not everything is. So this is an actual event, you know, it happens at a specific time, and there is a success or failure. Rarely does science work quite like that. Um, so it's it's a bit of a gift for us in that sense. And. and um, you know, I think we'd be fools not to, to to cover it, really.
3: In many ways, though, it seems to contradict the rule that something sort of has to affect the audience directly. It has to be kind of nearby, visible, it's kind of the definition of not nearby and often not not that visible.
2: Yeah, it's the ultimate escapism. So it, it's the it is almost. I mean, you're right because we're talking about we've just gone from talking about one huge story for news is Brexit and all the qualities that has, and this is almost the opposite. But actually, or it becomes a, if it really doesn't affect your life, that's a virtue because it's an escape from Brexit.
3: Dan mentioned the NASA PR machine. I've actually got a a quote here from project scientist Steve Levin of JPL and just an example of how great NASA are at hype. The quote reads, It's the biggest and baddest planet in the solar system and it's got the biggest and baddest radiation and the biggest and baddest magnetic field. You just don't really in other fields, hear scientists talking about that. Even when something is big and bad, like the LHC, you don't hear people at CERN being like, it's the biggest and baddest particle accelerator ever built.
4: I would have been so happy if he'd given me that quote. (laughs) (laughs) People just don't talk like that enough.
2: I think think it's great what NASA's done with this kind of giving Curiosity rover its own Twitter feed. And I think also ESA did a really good job with the Rosetta landing. Um, I think they've really pioneered a way that like, science doesn't have to be boring. It can be really interesting. And probably there's some freedom to do that because it doesn't affect people's lives in any personal way. It gives you this kind of, you're not going to offend anyone by giving the Curiosity Rover a Twitter feed. It's just really fun and en- and engaging. And why not?
1: But also, NASA um, and also space exploration in general are in this kind of quite privileged position with regards to science news, which is we don't expect them to have actually found anything. Like, we're quite happy to report on them just getting there and, like, sending back a nice picture. In just about any other field, we'd say, come back when you've got some results. It's like, we don't report on someone starting a clinical trial. We say, no, tell me when you've got a result and you've got something interesting to say.
4: I think that's completely fair, actually. And because when I, when I was writing a lot about Rosetta, the, the ETA mission, um, going to to a comet, it is a lot easier to write about what happens to this quite charismatic somehow spacecraft and its little tiny probe that's gone, you know, landed on the comet than it is to say this is something that we found because of Rosetta that hasn't been found by anybody else and that is gonna change the game and that is gonna tell us something about the origins of our solar system. Like, it's just not going to be that clear cut but what is clear cut is that this little beast has arrived there and what it's doing and
2: it's doing something that no no one you know has ever done before it's actually really a story about process and engineering when we write about space missions anyway not space science because a lot of the space science comes from telescopes and more boring stuff whereas the missions like Lizzie just said tend to be the actual result.
1: I would suspect the biggest baddest paper to come out of this entire study will get less than a tenth of the coverage of that first picture that is sent back.
4: Or it'll be wrapped up with another nine studies and we'll (laughs) we'll turn it into a picture gallery or something.
3: (laughs) Do you ever feel put out that your your favourite subject sometimes misses out to we sent a thing to a thing story?
2: Uh, no. I probably don't. But I bet Dan does. <laughs> I uh, clearly uh, Dan
3: <laughs> Curse you, space probes. <laughs> I, I think
1: if you work in science journalism, you, ex- you kind of accept that the public doesn't necessarily share your exact set of interests. No one wants to read my personal news feed because... It's not what most people are interested in. So, yeah, you can have your news about space probes. I don't really care
4: there is one thing though that frustrates me about all of this reporting and i absolutely do it myself and it's an essential part of any story um is the line about like how people reacted when they discovered that it arrived and everything was fine the old everybody burst into applause or there was like hugging and crying and stuff like it's i, I know it's an essential part and um, but honestly if you go back and look in any article on this topic you will find a line like that
1: so as, are you secretly hoping that it explodes in a great ball of fire. Hey, it's like like Brexit. Brexit.
4: (laughs) If it gets there, it's fantastic. And you've got a story. If it doesn't, that's a bigger story.
1: NASA scientists do their job properly and put a probe into orbit like they're supposed to. Is not a very catchy headline though, is it?
3: (laughs) They don't normally write the headlines like that. That's why your headlines never actually make it into print (laughs) then.
4: It's realistic.
3: Moving on now to a story that, in my view, should have been front page news on all the tabloids. Dan, a few weeks ago, uh, I think I bumped into you in a corridor and you told me the story you were working on was about flying rhinos to Australia. Now, I- I'm not entirely sure where to start on this other than to ask... Why? The
1: reason you might want to do this is because some people think that to save the rhino from the rampant poaching that's now going on, you might need a kind of insurance population. And they think that it would be easier to secure a small population of rhinos in Australia than it is currently to do that in Africa. Um, and if you want to secure a small population of rhinos in Australia, you have to get them there and you don't really want to put them on a boat. So
3: Now, the title of your piece was Plant Fly Rhinos to Australia Comes Under Fire what problem could anyone possibly have with this excellent plan? Well, the issue here is that um, moving
1: populations of species is actually quite controversial, Um, and especially to Australia, which has something of a history with introduced animals, um, shall we say not necessarily getting on well with the local flora and fauna. They've had huge issues with rabbits, with cane toads, going back a little bit further, dingoes as well. So taking a large animal like a rhino and saying we're just going to put them in the wild in Australia is a bit controversial. Um, The specific reason we were looking at it this time is that a group have written a letter to nature saying that they think the project um, is basically diverting money that should be used to save the animals in Africa um, away from that particular purpose. And obviously the people behind this Australian project kind of reject that entirely and say that this is a really necessary thing to be doing.
3: Now, of course, when we write any story, it's important to have an element of critique and outside opinion. But occasionally we'll do a story which is about the critique or outside opinion. Is it hard to do a story like that where you know you might be uh, putting people's backs up to some degree?
1: When I started in journalism, not at Nature, I should say, uh, I had an editor who said that if no one was annoyed with your story, you hadn't done your job properly. And I don't think that is always true at all. And it's certainly not always true in in science journalism. But equally, as a journalist, you can't be afraid of putting someone's back up. This story was about one group of researchers who are criticizing another group of researchers. That's what a lot of proper science news boils down to. And you have to try and present the arguments in a fair way and not necessarily take sides. But eventually, like, conflict makes for good yeah, news.
2: I would say exactly more the other way around. The more that a story is controversial, people dis- disagree with what someone else is saying, um, the more reason that we would write a story about it. So... I mean, yeah, flying, putting rhinos in planes is already pretty interesting. And I really want to know how many rhinos you can fit on a plane.
1: These are all good <laughs> questions. I don't know. And do they get to go first class? Because or... they've got the bigger seats up there. If <laughs> I was a rhino, them, I would
3: want to fly in that seat. For controversial stories, maybe more controversial than this, is it ever the case that you have to, to some extent, Burn bridges with a source?
4: They probably sh- they should know to some extent how journalists work. And as long as you're honest with them, you know, as long as you don't say, oh, I'm writing this piece about your wonderful plan. Please tell me all about it. And then what comes out is actually uh, a piece that uh, discusses both sides of the story. Then I don't think they're going to be perturbed. Usually if somebody has something to say and they have an argument, then they're happy to have it put across.
1: As science journalists, our job is not to go around saying how great science is and to go to everyone who's doing research and write wonderful, glowing reviews of of their project. If you're never critiquing the things you're writing about or you're never presenting any critiques about the things you're writing about, then what's the point of you?
4: And I'm actually very wary, I would say, if I write a story and, you know, everybody gets back to me when I when I, you know we do our own little kind of mini peer review when we're writing about some topic and, and ask lots of people their opinions and if everybody says it's amazing I'm like okay oh right I, I, something in me feels a little bit um, like uncomfortable like I might want to go out and just check with enough, another couple more
3: people Right I think that's quite enough about rhinos and other controversial stories thank you all for joining me Lizzie Gibney Dan Cressy and Celeste Beaver if listeners haven't quite got their fill of your respective streams of consciousness where can they find you on twitter
4: i'm at lizzie
2: gibney at celeste beaver
3: and i'm at dp cressy although if anyone's not interested
1: in brexit probably best not to follow at the moment
3: and i am at climate adam and if you want to let us know what you think of the podcast make sure to head over to itunes and drop us a review or a rating thanks a lot for listening
0: the nature podcast is supported by nature plus a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal nature and over 50 other journals from the nature portfolio more information at go.nature.com plus imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time